So we're going to look at implications of the church as a flock, Jesus as the chief shepherd, the, some of the material in the Old Testament and in the Gospels about um, Christians as sheep, and what, that, what are the implications of that for church leadership? That's what I want to do today. So we'll have plenty of passages to look at, I think. You should have a printed uh, outline that has the, the new um, PowerPoint. I'm not going to apologize for being on the same verse for so long because there's a dual purpose here. I want to make sure we understand the definition of the church and its leadership because what the Bible teaches about it is totally different from what's found throughout church history. The church has been misdefined, poorly defined, and turned into something it is not intended to be, and that's gone on since the death of the apostles. So that's where we're at. Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for gathering us today to remember your resurrection and the hope that we have in you. Thank you for your flock Give us wisdom to understand what you've said, how it applies, and how we can live out this faith in a world that's hostile to everything that you revealed. Give us grace and wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've covered Beyond Guard. There's a lecture on that and a discussion. The, the, the idea of the... The Holy Spirit made overseers. We looked at the fact that elders, presbyteros, overseers, episcopos, and then shepherds, which we'll look at today, are all the same people. It's the same group. There's no hierarchical structure to the church according to the New Testament. And there, right then and there, that fact separates the church as defined in the Bible from the church of church, the churches of church history. Almost every organization and institution called church has a hierarchical structure. Whereas the New Testament teaches the authority of Scripture, the lordship of Christ over everyone, and the priesthood of every believer, which we've talked about. The only valid <clears throat> leaders in the church, as defined in the Bible, are the elders. And then deacons are not are positions that are also valid, but are not the ones in, in charge necessarily of what's taught or not taught. Okay, so we've covered Beyond Guard, Eric, Eric did a whole uh, lesson on the, uh, the apostles, why the biblical ones are the only valid apostles. Okay, so we covered that. And then overseers to shepherd. I want to look at two things that we learned from the last part of this. To shepherd the flock, what does that mean? And why does it say purchased with his own blood, which we've covered. But the fact is that those who are the Lord's sheep are so because of the price he paid to purchase us 
from slavery to sin, darkness, Satan, evil, and everything that our own, the wrath of God against our sin, the blood atonement. And the implication is that those who are leaders, elders, have to have in mind the importance of each and every individual person who's purchased with the blood, it just lays a weight of significance, okay? The blood atonement. And we can't disregard the price that Christ paid for each and every one of his sheep. And to take that as insignificant is serious, uh, is serious error and it will also lead to the harm of the flock. So I covered guard, be on your guard. We covered that in a lecture. If you weren't here, these are all on the website, ggf.church. Appointed, how did, the question arises, how did the Holy Spirit appoint elders? Well, the Holy Spirit is at work creating the gifts and uh, virtues that you would see that you're looking for in elders that, you're, that are laid out. And Eric's talked about that in Timothy and so on. What we do is recognize what the Holy Spirit did. We don't need bishops and cardinals and district superintendents or whatever may be out there to decide. We need to be able to recognize what God did. And there's no one process that's going to guarantee there's never going to be a problem. Problems were there when the apostles were still alive. And we're not going to shock if there becomes problems in our day, but we need to have a, a groundwork, a basis for finding our way to what it's supposed to look like. Okay? So the institutional church, I... Well, I won't get into that right now, but the institutional church is not biblical. I just, Eric and I read an essay by this um, Kuiper, Abraham Kuiper, 1870, who Rick Warren considered a great Calvinist. He called himself a Kuiper Calvinist. Now, Kuiper was trying to save the institutional church in the Netherlands in 1870 during a modernist controversy. And even Kuiper, who's supposedly one of the most brilliant people, said that the Bible doesn't know anything of the institutional church, even though he used the Bible verse to justify it. Is that correct? Okay. The Bible does not understand, see, or define the institutional church. It arose in church history after the death of the apostles. And the point of the institutional church is to perpetuate the institution. Now, if you were here at the Good Friday thing, I shared about a little bit about that with Caiaphas. Institutions exist to perpetuate the institutions. And when it comes to the well-being of people versus the well-being of the institution, the leaders of the institution will choose the institution every single time without fail. And even in the face of the resurrection of Lazarus, after he was rotting in the grave, they wanted to convene 
because they needed to figure out how to stop this because now everybody's going to go after Jesus. He's a threat to their institution. And they said that. They're, the Romans will take away our place in our nation. So that's, I shared that on a, a Good Friday. Now, that's just what happens. That's what it looks like. That's what religious wars look like. That's what battles happen in, in denominations because institutions are self-perpetuating institutions. Whereas the flock... It consists of those purchased by the blood of Jesus and leadership defined biblically must care about the needs and of each person. There's no such thing as a sheep that's insignificant in the eyes of God. And if the sheep become insignificant in the eyes of the leadership because they don't have anything to offer, then you see a big problem happening. And that happens so often, it's just heartbreaking when you see it happen. Somebody's got to care about the sheep, even if they don't have any money, even if they're old. Sounds like a hearing test. <laughs> I don't think that's me. Is that coming from upstairs? How is the sound from upstairs coming down here? If it's me, I think I could fix that part of it. Okay. What do you know? It's a pro- there's a problem and it's not me. Yes. It's a good day. <laughs> um, so um, this, is, this is so heavy on my heart, this, the whole institutional thing. And I hadn't even thought about this in, in that Caiaphas incident until... I was asked to share on Good Friday, and it was just sitting there. Uh, that's, that's just, it's like a paradigm of how this works. We got to preserve what we have. And if that means getting rid of, then they wanted to kill um, Lazarus again. <laughs> he had already died. Now they wanted him dead again. Because why? He's a th- his, he was a sign that Jesus really is the Messiah. And we got to get rid of this. So that's what happens. Now, what we want is to define leadership biblically and according to the terms laid out by the real apostles, the biblical ones, who care about the flock. So I have on my outline here, Jesus shed blood, purchased his flock. Each one is precious to him. And I want to prove that from Scripture. First of all, I mentioned this. The, the enemy... To the well-being of the flock is what in church history is called the monarchical bishop. I think I had a... Did I cite Pole Hill? I think I did. Dr. Pole Hill says a monarchical bishop ruling over a number of congregations is clearly not in view. Such an organization does not seem to have developed until the second century. That's what Pole Hill said. That's a, even the ones that believe in that say that, including Kuiper. So the, the monarchical, what's a monarchical, monarchical bishop? A single person with authority over multiple congregations. They may not be called a bishop. They might be called a district superintendent. Or they might be called whatever you want to call it. may, may sound, but then there are people calling them apostles. Nowadays, we have the apostles movement. So the apostles have translocal authority. 
and their teachings are not derived from Scripture alone. So now we have a problem. So the longer the, the organization existed, the bigger it is, the more levels of authority there are, the more the function, the existence of that organization is grounded in infrastructure, buildings, authorities, and everything in the, that would be similar to a business in the world. Remember, Caiaphas was worried about his place and their status with Rome, the place being the temple, the status being we get to do what we want in a limited degree that we have. That might be taken away from us. Therefore, we better do something about this guy who raised Lazarus, caring less about the people involved. And purposely, I believe, John portrays this as a compassionate act on Jesus' part, not simply because Lazarus was dead, but because of his love for Mary and Martha. And that's where you find Jesus wept. He cared about the well-being of people that had no particular status in the eyes of the power that be. So um, each one is precious to him. And the monarchical bishop, or whatever else they may be called, has a role, and the role is to preserve the institution at all costs. And this is played out and continues to be. It strikes home with a lot of people, even the little church that I grew up in, which had gone liberal anyhow, but uh, now they had to vote to leave the United Methodists. They have a massive split going on across the whole country over whether homosexuals can be ordained into the ministry. And down in the rural areas, they say, we can't go with that, and they left. But then you have all these problems because who owns the building? And now you're, are you under the bishop that's in Des Moines anymore? And, and, and this is just kind of how it plays out. What's the alternative? The alternative is a biblically defined congregation that has, is not tied necessarily to a building. It's tied to the Savior and the scriptures and the priesthood of every believer and love and concern for one another and a, a, a need to pro proclaim the gospel so that people are added to the church. And that has to be what the church is, in which case it can meet a lot of different places. So that's, I think, what we're learning here. Now, the visiting, we talked about the word, the, the, there's a visited is a deponent verb based on the very word that we have for overseers. And so when a visitation would be in the Old Testament, when God comes and inspects what's going on. Uh, what, Eric, what happens when there's a visitation? Either salvation or judgment. Yeah, either salvation or judgment. Okay, visitation is good for some and bad for others because God is going to come and bring salvation to those who are trusting him and judgment to those who are in rebellion. So we have these groups nowadays gathering, trying to call down the visitation. Have you seen that? 
It's on YouTube now. Come down, come down. They're calling down God. Come down, come down. But some of the, they don't realize they're asking to be judged. And they're, they're overly impressed with their own status. And the real visitation that will come will be the, the eschaton, the end, when the, when the wrath of God is poured out. So we need to be sober-minded and care for the, the flock and not make grandiose claims about ourselves or create, um, how would you say, positions of authority that give power to people who would be tempted to abuse it and hope that they don't. If you don't want people to abuse the power, you don't create a monarchical bishop. And you certainly don't create apostles and prophets. Go ahead, uh, Luann. Yeah, I just love that he uses the term shepherd and flock because, you know, we're kind of far from agriculture and husbandry anymore. And having had sheep and being, you know, part of shepherding sheep, it's an active role that you have to do with such tender care. Sheep are different than other uh, herd animals. And, um, you know, you don't just wait for the sheep necessarily to come to you with an injury or a concern. Every day you're out there as the shepherd caring for them, you are looking for something different in these animals because they hide what their problems are. And so you have to be able to, you know, interact lovingly. You know, if you're loud and abusive and, you know, they're not going to trust you, they're going to leave the building every time you come in. I mean, it is such a caring relationship, and I think that's you know his purpose besides that sheep are so popular there but it's so easy to compare it to us yeah the, um, on the farm where I grew up we didn't raise sheep well, but well. We, we had some we had sheep because they were good lawnmowers <laughs> okay the farmyard had everything growing and dad couldn't get there with the mower very well and there was a lot of land the sheep would just take it right down to the but if they ever got in a grain bed, they, they literally, oh, Jessica, could you, am I, there's, there's a, find the, we're running out of battery there. They, they've got it, you couldn't get, if they got in a grain bed, they'd eat until they kill themselves because they ate too much. So we had to keep them locked away from the grain bin. But they would go around and keep the mowing done. But here's, on that point, we got to be careful. There's a guy named Tim Keller called, who I think, I don't know if he's emergent or what, but he said, a shepherd looks at his 23rd Psalm. The, what we need to know is what they thought about sheep and shepherd, not what Tim Keller thinks. So the, because the author determines the meaning. So we want to, in, in that regard, let's look at that now. Let's go to, we're going to get, okay, we did it. We got to a new slide. We covered it. Took about three weeks. Now let's go and look at Luke 15, 4 through 6. The first thing we want to discuss is the fact is you'll go after the herding sheep, as Luann was mentioning that. Which, which, what does a shepherd do? Well, let's see what Jesus says about it. In fact, if you want to turn there, we'll look at verses 1 and 2 as well.
Luke 15, 1 and 2. By the way, this is in the same chapter where we have the prodigal son, which most people know about. Luke 15, 1 and 2. It says, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him or hear him. Listen is an important word in Luke Acts. To whom do you listen? Well, they wanted to hear with faith what Jesus was saying. Okay? And then verse 2, but both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, the words in the Greek are very important. Grumble, here with a prefix, diagangudzo, is a word that was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the children of Israel grumbling in the wilderness. And they grumbled about Moses. And they grumbled about the bread. And in John 6, the same, minus the prefix, which is an intensive here, grumbled about Jesus. They're grumbling. Received as pros decomai. Decomai is a, a, a wonderful word in the Greek. And it really has the idea of not just, okay, you can come in, but welcoming, welcoming warmly. Zacchaeus welcomed. So you, they welcomed the very one that was rejected by the leadership of Israel at the time. So they're grumbling that he welcomed sinners and ate with them. Yeah, now the point is the type of people they were grumbling about, they saw as unclean, as rejects, and not worthy of attention. And having nothing in particular to offer them other than contaminating them with their uncleanness. And that would go for lepers. That goes for shepherds, by the way. Shepherds were considered unclean because of they couldn't keep, uh, they couldn't scrupulously keep the requirements of the oral law and do everything as they should. So they were considered unclean. I think I cited something about that in one of the sermon recently. So here's sinners coming to hear him, and so they grumble. Now we have to hear verse start with verse four. That was one and two. Um, verse four says, "But what man among you?" Here's a here's a response to that grumbling. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Somebody made a picture of that, didn't they? That comes to my mind. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. So here's rejoicing at the finding of the lost, the grumbling at the contamination the sinners brought. So when sinners are found, do they contaminate the Christian or do they give bad advertisement for the institution? 
they were afraid here of uh, being contaminated by the sinners, but Jesus is the Holy One of Israel. Now this grumbling is grumbling over God's ways, just like it was with Moses in the wilderness. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, to cleanse the lepers, to, to work. Can you imagine spending most of your life shouting when anytime, anytime somebody came near, unclean, unclean. They had to shout because they got too close. They'd become contaminated and thus unclean, unable themselves to go to the religious services until they got cleansed. That's why they had to show themselves to the high priest to be declared clean. The woman with the issue of blood, perpetual issue of blood, perpetual uncleanness, unending uncleanness. And then when she touched him, that, that would consider that was really bad because then the uncleanness would spread. But Jesus is clean by being who he is. Now it says, let me uh, cite this, Luke 18, 11. The Pharisee, if you want to turn there, Luke 18, 11. This shows the attitude of those who were looking to themselves as being righteous. And I will point out, this can be reversed, which it is in our day, by the socialists. They accuse anybody who believes that we need redemption, atonement, of being Pharisees. But we need to get the category straight. The issue is whether we are sinners needing redemption and whether Jesus offers that or whether we think that good is evil and evil is good. But Luke 18, 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. That's an interesting someone to pray to. God, he prayed to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Probably not the good way to uh, start your prayer. <laughs> I thank you I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. So it doesn't cost anything to look around and see that everybody else is in worse shape than we are. But a sober-minded evaluation of the truth points to the need for the blood atonement. Amen. Okay, that's why we wanted to emphasize the shepherd of flock that he purchased with his blood. Yep. We're not saying that as we are, without Christ, without forgiveness, without redemption, we can do whatever we see fit, and God has to accept it. We're not saying that. What we are saying is if the Lord receives someone who's a repentant sinner, in Luke 15, it goes on to the prodigal and all well, the lost coins or other parables. And so once someone does come to the Lord and sees their need, who are we to say, well, I'm glad I'm not like that person? It's not being sober-minded. Now, in Luke 19, we have Zacchaeus. I'll just read that to you. Luke 19, 5, 6, and 7. 
when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, remember he got up in a tree, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must, day, divine purpose, stay at your house. Now that was that would be crazy to say I must stay at your house because this guy was considered evil by anybody important in Israel. He was one of these tax farmers. And verse 6, 196, and he hurried and came down and received him gladly. He welcomed him. Hupo decamai. Hupo would be an intensive. He received him gladly. He welcomed him. In verse 7, and when they saw it, they began to, you guessed it, grumble. The other time it's used in the, with that prefix. Began to grumble. He's been gone to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. I think I preached on uh, Luke 5, and then that happened there again. He was a guest. Who, who's the guest? Who's at the banquet? And the banquet is filled with uh, unsavory characters. But they repented. That's the part, by the way, that the liberals miss. They see the idea, everybody has a place. But they reject repentance. In other words, the way you have to stay the way you are because you have a right to, you don't need forgiveness, you don't need the blood atonement, you don't need cleansing, you don't need to be born again, you don't need to be a new creature in Christ. You just need to be who you are, and then everybody else is supposed to be happy about that. Now, that's not what was going on here. The woman weeping at Jesus' feet at a banquet was a repentant sinner. Zacchaeus is a repentant sinner, if you read the story. In other words, seeing your need for redemption and atonement isn't the same as seeing your right to be however you are, and everybody better like it. Do you see the difference? And so uh, liberalism, the Marxist version of Christianity, uh, would say, would discount the idea of the fall. There's no fall. The Garden of Eden didn't result in the fall. It resulted in opportunities. Okay, now... We see the fall to be what it really is. Sin, we're alienated from God, we're lost, and we need a Savior. We need forgiveness, we need redemption, we need cleansing, or even if we are virtuous compared to other persons, if we live a virtuous life compared to other sinners and did good things and got an education, and took care of our community, and somebody you're glad to have as a neighbor, kept, took care of everything, but had no place for God, you're as unclean as the most unclean sinner there is anywhere else. Because you don't have God. You don't want him. So keep the categories right. The categories in the Bible are repentant sinners rejected by the religious leaders, yes. Yeah, I used to wonder what that verse meant. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are ways of death. That confused me. I had no idea what that meant. And then it dawned on me. What it means is this, is 
like that Pharisee, he compared himself with other people. So when we compare ourselves to other people, hey, I'm a pretty good guy. I don't do drugs and I don't molest yeah. my neighbors. But, yeah. but I think the point is, is that when the Holy Spirit, this is the one litmus test of being born again, is when the Holy Spirit convicts me and shows me, no, man, I deserve hell yeah. like anybody else. I'm a wicked man. That's what leads repentance. It's absolutely. When I see and understand my desperate need for the person and the work yeah. of Jesus yeah. Christ, that's the litmus test of salvation. I need Christ because I am damned without him. Yeah, the, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And... Uh, in when Robert Schuller had the self-esteem reformation going on and with the crystal. I know I'm an old man. I remember that. Um, there was some pushback and some debate about that. And someone wrote a book about it. Brownback? I'm trying to remember who wrote the book. I remember reading it. They actually interviewed people that were in prison that were people who had done heinous crimes and they asked them what they thought about themselves and one after another they thought they were better than somebody else yeah they weren't they were thinking well yeah I did kill a couple people but this guy over there is worse look what he did so this the noetic effect of sin means how we believe and see things is influenced by the fall so as long as we can find someone worse, then we're not so bad. The thing that was interesting about Zacchaeus and others in that they're in these uh, accounts in the book of Luke is they realized their need. It's an act of mercy that we see how needy we are. Amen. And that we see we need the blood atonement. Amen. That only the sinless one, the, the blood of Jesus, the sinless lamb, could ever pay the price that I was under. Amen. And those who are delivered are rejoicing to be free. Freedom isn't, I get to do whatever I want and everybody else likes it. Freedom is release. Release, a fiamy, a thesis. To be released and set free and cleansed. So there is the grumbling. Now, the attitude then of the shepherd is going to be the well being of the flock. And it has to include the one that's suffering and the one that I will leave the 99 and care for the one that is hurting. The sad thing in church history is the hurting one typically doesn't have anything to offer the institution. That's what leads to the grumbling. You're wasting your time. Now, I will say this. The institution might become a charitable one and say, we're going to take care of all these needs, but they're not even going to offer them redemption and salvation and forgiveness of sins. They're going to offer a program run by an institution to alleviate temporary problems until you die and go to hell. That's, that's just how institutions function. Why? Because only the gospel can get rid of the real problem, which is sin. 
And better to have redemption and forgiveness of sin and a blood atonement and be part of the flock and then we care for each other than to start an institution that's going to, post in a post-millennial way, bring paradise to earth. So emergent is all about paradise coming to earth without future judgment. Jesus is offering salvation to sinners. Okay, so John 10, 11 through 14, I put this slide in here to emphasize the flock which was purchased by his blood has to be in the minds of the elders and overseers and shepherds, all the same people. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. There's an I am saying, by the way. I am, we talked about that, didn't we, yesterday in the, we were recording? I am, the, the, one of the really great ones is in John 8. Before Abraham existed, I am. Okay, eternal, non-contingent existence. I know my own and my own know me. So let's think about it this way. Care for the flock, which the Lord purchased with his blood. What this means is that each one the Lord has redeemed is precious to him. The overseers or the episcopos that would be from the word for visit are there to make sure that that one that was purchased by God through the blood of Jesus is protected from the wolves. Does that make sense? And we saw that. We see that beware, beware of the wolves. So we must protect each person from the wolves. And here's the irony, unbelievable irony. When you actually start doing that, the people that have power out there come and attack the shepherd for protecting them from the wolves. How dare you correct us? Literally. How dare you? And that, that's what happened when we started warning about false prophets, false apostles, false teachings, and so on. We came under severe uh, uh, censor from our previous friends who said, how dare you sully our reputation? Because we're the great people of God in charge of the move of God. We're uh, like the, um, in uh, this Kansas City, they had a teaching for a while in the 80s. We're a new breed of man. There isn't any claim they won't make and they're saying, we're pious, we pray 24 hours a day, we're a new breed of man. How dare you say there's something wrong with us? And so then people came and said, why do you keep writing and saying these things? How dare you uh, attack the Kansas City prophets? And I say, how dare they harm the children of Christians who go down there and they're told, 
that they can't, they, the parents called me and said, we lost our kid to this group in a Christian home. And they're seeing, and some of them don't see their parents for years because the parents are impious and not worthy of the fellowship with their own kids because they're down there in that group who claims to be more holy than everybody else. So if you correct the wolves, the wolves tell you that you're an evil shepherd. There you go. Okay. I have a, I can put a statement on what you're saying. Okay. It's a maxim. I think you can take a maxim and hang it on the wall, and it's true for all time. You become the problem for noticing the problem. Right. You're right. That's it. Yeah, you're the problem for noticing the problem. And that's exactly what happened in the Gospels. Who became the problem there? There's only one Jesus Christ, the Holy One, the Sinless One. But to the leaders of the institution, he's the problem. Okay, how dare you? Okay, if you, uh, well, the point is, the shepherd, the the elders have to care about the well-being of the flock, not the reputation of people who already have status in the institution. Okay? The institution will squash anybody that questions them. Remember, Eric, when we... <laughs> yeah, and we were... It's just, you wouldn't believe it. In fact, somebody said, be, beware of kindly old gentlemen. That might, I don't know if I'm kindly. I'm old. I don't know. If <laughs> the other things apply. But, but you got to judge by fruit and teaching and things like that. But what were we asking for? This is the leader of a seminary. And I brought, the, when I first met Eric, the first day I ever saw Eric, brought my notes from one of the classes I'd had when they were teaching solid theology, and it, it, it just opened it up. So here, we, when I was, we studied the, what, the meaning of the Lord's Supper, different ideas, church history, the scriptures about it. We studied the meaning of baptism, and we went through some of the different issues, eschatology. Don't you think your students need to learn these things? What was his answer? How much money do you want back? Yeah. Well, do you want your money back? The answer meaning, we're not going to do that. We're not going to train people. Go ahead, Eric. You know, Bob, too, you talk about piety and false piety. What was ironic is at the time, Marxism is on the rise through this emerging church movement that's going into Bethel, and they would ridicule business owners. And I would look, and I'd see all the parking lot, all the people who were getting paid money, the professors, they all park in front. But the evil capitalists out there Go to a Walmart, the people who work park in back. And so they pride themselves at Bethel, we're creating the shepherds of tomorrow. They're teaching heresy. They reject the deity of Christ. They'll lead you straight into doctrine that leads you to hell. And all the people who are paid to do so, they park in front and ridicule the capitalists who have the good decency to treat their customers better than they do at Bethel. They park in the back. And I wasn't too polite to point it out. I said, this is ridiculous. And so that's what Bob and I ran into. And it's all because when Bob was there, they had men who would use the wrong pronouns, but they taught the word of God. They were ejected for people who used the approved pronouns, but led people to be 
sons and daughters of hell. And that's what the emerging church movement did. And Bob pointed it out, and they didn't like it, and so they attacked well, I, Bob I, and me. I managed to have enough. By the time you got there, there wasn't much left to join. <laughs> right. I graduated in 99. What year did we meet? It was 2004. 2004. Yeah, that's our 2005. Well, yeah. that's what institutions do. Yeah. Now, here's the underlying reality that never, ever, ever changes. Whatever institutions do, whatever accolades they will give to those who serve the institution, whatever titles they have, whatever property they have, whatever money they have, whatever they have to offer... God is still concerned about his sheep. And the real sheep are the ones who were rescued from perishing. And typically the institution was started by some who had that idea, but it turned into something else over the years in order to self-perpetuate. The idea is if we preserve what we have through these processes, then it'll always be here. But then what's there 40, 50 years later is the institution, but not anything that would actually bring redemption to a lost sheep. Because it's not even on the table. Because they've gone over to universalism or the social gospel or something else. So therefore, my claim is this. You're wasting your time creating institutions. There is no translocal authority, and I hope that's the right word. It's the only one I can think of, translocal, that someone sitting in headquarters, as like in Iowa down in Des Moines, can say, here's what you have to do in your local church. That's not valid. It's not biblical. There is authority over every local church. It's Christ and his apostles, and we know that from here. The real apostles, not the ones who claim to be that now. And then also, the, the city quad non, without which not, the baseline is this, the authority of scripture and priesthood of every believer. Why is that important? That means any ordinary needy person who loves Jesus and knows the need for redemption and salvation can cry out directly to him and the high priest, the chief, the chief shepherd, the Holy One of Israel will hear them and answer. You don't have to pray to yourself like the Pharisee. He hears us. He hears us. And only God can do that. It shows you the deity of Christ. How can our intercessor at the right hand of God, he intercedes for us, how can he hear millions of people praying to him at the same time? Because he has the attributes of deity. Do you think Mary can do that? Isn't it insulting to both God and to even the biblical Mary for people to believe that, that there's a goddess who can somehow have this status, it's not, it's not even possible. If you just think about the categories that must exist, then what we come up with 
is the local flock with elders and our concern for one another is the baseline of what the church is. And if we don't create an institution that's going to be here 50 years or 100 years from now, whatever happens, we didn't fail because everyone belongs to the flock and the Lord will raise up people wherever they might meet. And we were talking about this earlier, might meet in a living room or a rented facility, or this is a rented facility. Just meet and take care of each other. You don't need the institution. It, the institution will always strangle the organism eventually, yes. Yeah, and you know, one of the objections, I, I, I think it's interesting to kind of imagine what other people who oppose, take a different view would say. And I can imagine, um, you know, someone from an institutional church saying, well, we need to have these supervisors, you know, to protect our, our local churches from error. But here's how the local church is protected from error, I think, biblically. And, and that is, as you mentioned, the priesthood of every believer. If every believer will study the Word of God, mm-hmm. and, and if you are a believer, the Holy Spirit will help you to understand the Word of God. Every believer does this. And so then, in the local church, if you have a church full of people who study the Word of God and love the Word of God and who love the, Jesus Christ and who's, who are being obedient, and that's a big key too, of course. Don't, don't get me started on that. Uh, but if you have that, the pastor is going to be accountable and everyone, you know, God's Word will prevail then. And you don't need that, that hierarchy. That, that, that's why we... Uh, like to have a one meeting like this where we can help each other learn the word. We have to be under the authority of Scripture. If somebody has a better reading, the better reading needs to prevail. And we can learn. We can change. Now, on as John 10, I know my own and my own know me. Um, now, this is grounded. I got a little few minutes here. If you want to jot some of these down on your notes there. Uh, this is grounded in the Old Testament as Yahweh as the shepherd. Psalm 28, 7 through 9. In other words, the Lord is caring for his own flock, Yahweh. Um, Psalm 28, 7, the Lord, all caps in the NHB, meaning Yahweh, is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts and my song with my song, I shall thank him. Psalm 28, 8. The Lord, again, Yahweh, is their strength. He is a saving defense to his anointed. Psalm 28, 9. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also and carry them forever. Psalm 28, 9. This assures us that we don't have to create a human institution to preserve this relationship. Because it says... The Lord himself will carry them forever. You can't persecution, martyrdom, burning up books, attacking people, whatever may happen has never succeeded in stamping out God's regenerating power to save people and add them to his church. And whether they're gathered somewhere where they're persecuted where they're gathered openly, as we can do. Um, The Lord will always care for his own. 
and the under shepherds, mentioned in Acts 20 and verse 28, have to care about the sheep. Everyone. And no one can, if it's a very big group, there's more needs than we can totally know. But it isn't just elders that do everything. We take care of each other. And what a joy when you see people care for each other and we don't even know what's happening. We find out later this one went over and did this and this one prayed and this one brought food and this one visited. That's how the Lord works. We don't have to have programs for everything. If you want to see the problem with programs, just look at the civil society. Programs by the billions of dollars of programs they never stamp out a single problem. The, it, does, it doesn't work. Why? Because we live in a fallen world and the problems take care. I'll tell you what I can say from personal experience. When your worst day comes and you're told you're going to die, and that's happened to me several times. Only well, one time, so my wife has to tell me I'm going to die because they tell her they don't tell me. But anyhow, one time for sure they thought I was going to die. And so I just thought about the Lord and heaven, and I didn't feel that bad, even though my body wasn't making white blood cells up, man, I was going to die. But I lived, and the people that love me still love me. They still care for me. Amen. It was a brother here from the church that brought me to the doctor, and I even ended up in the hospital because I thought maybe I'd be okay. We need each other. We don't need programs. We need each other. Programs can be as long as they don't become an end in themselves. And if they're not serving the end, we didn't fail if we ditched the program. Programs are not eternal. A couple more. We got a couple minutes here. You know this one, Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It doesn't say the archbishop is my shepherd. I have a hard time even watching it. Uh, today, because of um, the day we celebrate the resurrection, they're bringing out the cardinal of somebody. <coughs> Robed cardinal. Why would you not do that? I don't think that's even a matter of liberty. Some things you can say, well, we have liberty to have stained glass. Okay. I guess you could claim that. But you can't claim the liberty to be robed. Because it's warned about in Matthew 23. They put on long robes, love the honorable greetings in the neighborhood. Remember that? And to be seen by men. Yeah, they want to be seen and honored. And to me, to put on the robe and the, and the vestiges is sinful. And it shows right then and there, you need to repent. Amen. Don't stand there and tell me you know something about the resurrection in your garb. Repent, get rid of the garb, and be an ordinary person and tell people about Christ. Amen. And I, I don't think I'm going out of bounds by saying that. When I graduate from seminary, my dad, I don't want to dishonor him 
there's very few people I've loved more in my life than my dad. But from coming from the institutional church, he said, now that you graduated, I'm going to buy you a robe. I said, do not do that. <laughs> Why not? I said, well, because that's trying to tell people I'm special. He says, you are special. I said, no, I would rather quit the ministry than stand in a robe because I will not do it. And I was I rarely talked to my dad like that, but we were smiling. And no, no robe, because the Bible said not to do that. We don't even want to be tempted. You can say, well, maybe a humble person can be robed. Possibly. But why, why be tempted? Or why tempt others? Or why say something to others that's not true? The only kind of person who can be a minister is a sinner saved by grace. So there you go. That's my opinion on robes. What about choir robes? Well, as long as everybody's the same. I don't, I don't. That's, that's not our business. John 10, 15. Even as the father knows me and I know my, the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. That attitude is to characterize every elder, pastor, and Episcopos, Presbyteros, and so on, the leadership of the local church, which is the same people. That, and to be characterized, every one of us, as the priesthood of every believer. We don't need priestly robes. We need priestly knowledge that we can go directly to the throne of grace. Dr. Michael said this, without, with or without the metaphor of shepherd and sheep, Jesus' intent is simply that all his disciples, Jew or Gentile, present present and future alike will become one in their relationship to God, their love for God, for each other, and their mission to the world. So the one is what we are in Christ. The message never changes. The redemption never changes. The status of being sheep never changes. And it says right here that there is such a thing as a sheep Shepherd, and that's in green there. See that? When the chief shepherd appears, uh, quickly exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, shepherd the flock of God among you, existing oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sword gain, but with eagerness, nor is the lording it over those allotted to your charge but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. There is a chief shepherd. He's in heaven. The good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. We'll start with this one next week. And um, Oh, good. I've got some more. All right, well, maybe we can finish this section. Setting record. I've got through a verse. Thank you for... Um, engaging in this discussion of the scriptures and I realize that the implementing is more difficult than the understanding but we need the Lord to give us grace to implement what he taught let's pray thank you Lord for your goodness and kindness we pray for Eric as he would preach the truth about who you are and what you've done may our hearts be open to this and may the Holy Spirit convict those who have not heard or are not believed to turn to you and believe in you. 
And we thank you, pray for each one as we go home today to families that we would be a good witness for you and what you've done for us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.